This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com view. everybody and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Ari Clark and today on our panel we have Ben Hong. Hello. And Chris Fritz. Hello. And our special guest for this episode is Hope Wilder. Hope, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm the founder of Pathfinder Community School, which is a self-directed learning community for ages 5 to 14 in Durham, North Carolina. And we focus on self-directed education, and applying democratic principles with children. Sounds very interesting. Very different from my educational experiences, certainly. Um, <laughs> so the theme of this episode will actually be education. So let's start with Chris's background as an educator, since this episode is his brainchild. <laughs> yeah, and first, let me um, also provide a little bit of context. Like I've worked with Hope before on education for an increasingly open source world. And my personal background as an educator is I was trained uh, in secondary education, taught middle school, high school for a while. I've also taught at university levels, community schools, given a lot of workshops. I am and have always been very passionate about education and very frustrated sometimes when I found that traditional education systems often don't really help people adapt to a world where we have to constantly learn new things. Like one of my favorite quotes is, it's bad enough that you can't anymore like learn everything you need to know for life and then just be done with it, but that you have to relearn everything that you know every five years. And that was Goethe in 1805. So things have gotten like (laughs) the world moves a little bit faster now than it did in 1805. Just a little. So this is like, this has been a problem for a long time that in traditional schools, people basically learn that they have to do what they're told, when they're told and how they're told. And so they're not really given a lot of responsibility to figure out how to learn on their own. In fact, a lot of times people learn that they just don't like learning, which is absolutely false. They just don't like learning in the school context usually. And I think something that is especially common in developers is that we get really geeked about stuff and about like learning and directing our own learning, you know, finding our own resources, finding and creating our own communities, that kind of thing. And I brought these education principles to uh, the VIEW team when I joined. And I tried to help people develop these skills in the communities that I, I help create and foster, and also in the resources that I create, like View Enterprise Boilerplate is a classic example of something that, that actually like helps you learn how to do stuff outside of it. And in my workshops too, like I, I try to help people solve problems in their projects rather than doing a bunch of exercises in you know, a, a more contrived context. I, I want them to, to practice skills the same way they would at work so that they can learn how to access the resources available, stuff like that. So you mean we aren't all writing to-do apps at work? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <I've, laughs> <Sorry. laughs> I, have, I have written surprisingly few to-do apps <laughs> for, for profitable contexts. Yeah. Funny how that works. And Hope, what about you? Like, how did you get into education, end up founding a school? What was your story? Yeah, so I started out in environmental education. I was working outside, just in all different contexts with kids. And I saw kids from public schools, private schools, homeschools, like every kind of schooling. I worked with thousands of children. And that gave me kind of like a a boot camp in education. and. The more I worked with kids, the more I saw that forcing kids to learn things just doesn't really work. I I would see 
It's like giving somebody food when they're not hungry. And I got to the point where I was working at this beautiful outdoor garden and I was walking these kids around on a field trip. And one of them said to me, like, why can't I just, you keep pointing things out to me, but why can't I just look at what I want to look at? Um, And that hit me really hard. I had heard about self-directed education, which is where people choose what they learn. And they also choose, it's from their intrinsic motivation. They set their own goals, their own priorities, and they only learn what they really want to learn. So I got to the point where I just didn't want to teach anybody who wasn't interested in what I had to learn. It felt um, tedious for both me and my students when I was teaching them things that their parents had signed them up for, but that they weren't actually really interested in. And then I I fell down the self-directed education rabbit hole. I found out about these democratic free schools and I, I heard about it and I said, I either need to move and work at one of these schools, or I need to start one. And I tried moving. I didn't like it. So I started one. Yeah. So what does it mean for it to be like a democratic school? Yeah. So the kids get to choose not only what they learn, how they learn, and who they learn it with, but they also get to help change the rules of the environment. So it's a very systems level approach where kids have a voice in everything from how we spend our program supply budget They also help solve problems on a daily basis. Um, Yesterday, we were solving the problem of there's too many coats on the floor in the room where we keep our coats. And the kids came up with solutions of, we need more coat hooks. Or what if it's somebody's job at the end of the day to pick up all the coats so we can sweep the floor? So every part of the day, the kids give feedback on how to make things better. So it sounds like in addition to learning, you're actually teaching them sort of conflict resolution skills and like communication skills? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of how to speak up for yourself, how to speak up for your ideas. We're really open to ideas from any quarter, from the five-year-olds to the 14-year-olds. It doesn't matter who the ideas are coming from. So these kids get really, really, really good at communicating. And I, I ran across like self-directed learning and free democratic schools like almost a decade ago. Uh, actually, I think maybe even more than a decade ago. Uh, and I was, I was really, really skeptical at first as a young teacher. You know, I thought like, this sounds like anarchy. How does this not turn into like a Lord of the Flies situation? <laughs> yeah, that's and what I'm thinking too. <laughs> honestly, in, in some schools that practice this, it, it has seemed like more of a, a Lord of the Flies situation where like the kids actually don't feel safe in that environment because they're not, mm. they're not given the skills at the same time to, to figure out how to work together how to self-govern. And that's something that I think really separates like the, the really, really good self-directed learning schools from, from the ones that are a little bit more chaotic, even though like the great self-directed learning schools often look like chaos because we're used to rows of desks where kids like sit down and <laughs> shut up. And that's what, that's what good learning looks like. And that's what good education looks like. Or that's what, that's what we've been brainwashed to think. Or I mean, that's what we're used to really. Yeah, and I would, I would just piggyback on that and say that at Pathfinder, we say the curriculum is community. So we absolutely mm. do teach the kids conflict mediation, communication skills, and cooperative governance. So we don't expect that people just learn those things magically when they come from a very competitive culture. So mm. those collaborative, cooperative skills are pretty much the, the only thing that we make the kids learn as a part of joining the community. Um, otherwise, community is really hard. Working together with people is really hard and it takes skills. I have definitely found that in my work <laughs> and like all what? of my relationships. <laughs> yeah. You mean you don't code in silo and do everything by yourself? No, but I mean, it's, it's kind of a joke within development in that like when you have one developer, you're really productive. And then when you bring on a second developer, you know, you'd expect higher productivity but your productivity is probably cut in half or something like that, at least initially, while you're still learning how to work together. We don't really get any guidance in traditional education about how to figure out how to work together. And this is especially apparent in open source, where sometimes there isn't even a leader, where we're just sort of getting together and figuring out, like, what should we do then? Like, how do we negotiate 
our values? How do we negotiate responsibilities, rules? How do we resolve conflicts? Yeah, I was just about to comment on that because I've noticed that a lot of times open source projects, you have these people who are really passionate about the same thing. And so you're like, great, if we get all of us together, we'll be like this cohesive functioning unit and do great things. But there's, to your point, there's so much that comes with the, the management, the communication and like how to get on the same page. Yeah, I hadn't ever really considered it before, but I think my first like true group project wasn't until college. And that definitely taught me some conflict resolution skills out of necessity, pretty much off the bat. Because yeah, it was you know, negotiating responsibilities, who was responsible for what, what were the consequences of not being responsible for your portion of it. And yeah, those were things I hadn't really cultivated in high school because in high school, it was very much um, you against everyone else, mm-hmm. not you working with everyone else. Mm-hmm. And even at university, like I mostly learned like, oh, it's easier just to not collaborate. It's easiest <laughs> if I just do it all myself because like none of us know how to actually work together. Wait, yeah, you I mean, may or may didn't... not have just done other people's work. Right. <laughs> You're like, just give me your section of the paper. I'll, I'll edit everything. That was literally what happened. <laughs> like, I don't trust any of you to get a good grade. I'll just do it all. Mm-hmm. So, like, how does that kind of stuff look like at Pathfinder? Like, how do kids learn these skills? Yeah. So, we have meetings every day, and each day we have a different topic of the meeting. So, on Tuesdays, it's culture. And the questions are really kind of what kind of culture do we want to cultivate? So it's things like a lot of emotional, social intelligence, like what does it look like for you when you're scared? What does it look like when you're angry? What makes you feel respected and valued? And the kids come up with all different kinds of things. And a lot of them are very kid answers like, don't murder me or (laughs) ask before you poke me. But I'm like, ask before you poke me. Was murder a problem in the school before? It was a rough neighborhood for a while. There's a lot lot of foam swords and there's a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, but that's that's the extent of the murder in the school. But also like, yeah, don't don't hit me with swords without my consent. Yeah, yeah. So consent (laughs) is really important and it's part of everything that we do. I also call it consent-based education. So then on Wednesdays, we talk about the rules and the kids get to decide if they want to change the rules, if there's any problems that they, they want to change things. We call it change up meeting. And a lot of the tools that we got are actually from agile management skills. We, we have so many sticky notes and so much like, you know, there's a lot of sticky notes. Yeah, I there's like a, there's a big Kanban board too. Yeah, there's, there's, like, a there's, Kanban board? there's like a, yeah, we have a community <laughs> Kanban board that's like, how do we want to be in community? And are we there? You know, is it working? We check in on the change up every week. So it has things like at the beginning, we had a no running rule because that was a pretty obvious safety rule. Like every school I've ever been to is like no running in the halls. And the kids were like, yeah, but is that really true? And all the adults were like, safety, safety first. So we decided to try for one day, run carefully. And we tried it for a day and nobody got hurt. And then the next day we we made a new rule that was no chasing games because when the kids got chasing games, they weren't able to run carefully. So we checked in on it the next week and it was like, everybody's running carefully and it's actually fine. And it means that they're able to work out more energy. So things like that have happened that were really surprising. Then on Thursdays every week, we have member circle, which is where the kids get to decide how they want to spend their program supply budget. So there's elected representatives. There's six kids, one, two from each age group. And one of them is the speaker for their age group. The other one's the listener. And they have to go ask their age group, how do you want to spend the resources that we share? We give the kids $200 every month. And sometimes like in December, they bought a snow cone machine to make snow cones for a party. They've sponsored several field trips to science museums. Last week, the kids approved buying more canvases so they could do more art and um, something called a rainbow loom. They voted to fill an entire room full of pillows yoga balls and other things. We call it the rumpus room. So it's basically like if you gave the kids a budget, what would they spend it on? And it's like, yes, they filled a room full of pillows. And all, all those things mean that the environment is really serving their needs. And if, if they come up and they say, we want a chemistry lab, we would build that. 
if they wanted 3D printers, we would we would do that. And it's really how the resources are used is really up to the kids. So, I mean, you obviously don't have infinite money to just like build anything that they dream of. It's like, we want a castle. Yeah. (laughs) And a rocket platform. (laughs) (laughs) They do say those things and then we research it and tell them how much it is. So they wanted to build a Mario tunnel. I think that was probably the funniest thing. And I was like, guys, a concrete tube all by itself is like $1,200. And they're like, that's not worth it. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. Because, I mean, who doesn't want a Mario tunnel, really? Yeah, and if it comes out of your candy budget. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or pillow, in this case. Yeah. Do you provide any sort of, like, suggestions or guidance or options for them to sort of work from? Or is it all very much from their own imaginations and their own personal motives? I'd say it's really from them. I see my job as just listening very carefully because kids might come up with ideas in other places. Like we use trash grabbers to pick up things in the parking lot. And uh, whenever we go on a nature hike, we take the trash grabbers with us and the kids always fight over them. So the last nature walk, they're like, we want more trash grabbers. I see it as my job to write that idea down and put it on the board for discussion. And also I, I bring ideas just by being a person. Like I'm interested in nature and my natural interest for nature attracts the kids who are also interested in what I'm interested in. And we call it creating a positive energy vortex is whenever a grown-up kind of leads an activity and it's something that they're passionate about. So yesterday I got out a microscope and we looked at slugs and worms and snails on like a, a microscope that projects the image onto a large screen so all the kids can look at it at oh, the same that's time. that's awesome. And kids yeah. would come by and they're like, look at my phone, look at my finger. Oh, my hands are so gross. You know, and so it's not like <laughs> biology class, mm-hmm. but it is something that they've been exposed to because there was a grown-up who was excited about it. Does that make sense, Ari? Yes. That sort of was more what I was thinking was, yeah. Because I mean, I, I feel like if you leave it entirely up to them without any of external influences, you run into this unknown, Hmm. unknowns problem where like you don't know what you want because you don't know it exists. Right. And I'd say, Mm. I'd say that kids, the people for whom they're really excited about possibilities, our school works really well, but there are some people who want things to just be decided for them. Mm. And it's not a great environment for that. Or they want, Mm. it's like, do you want a buffet or do you want a replicator where you can make anything happen? And it's like, I like replicators, but some people like buffets and they want to know what are my concrete choices. And to me, either one of those works as self-directed education, as long as the person who's learning is actively choosing their learning. So, you know, there are schools that look more like a buffet. They're just, that's not exactly what we do. Yeah, I I really love that. I can only imagine like growing up, what it might have been like for me to have that sort of choice and freedom. And I'm sort of reminded of like, there was a whole thing about how, for example, a lot of Asian kids were were like respect for authority is really big in a lot of Mm -hmm. Asian cultures. Mm -hmm. So when we go to like the doctors, like usually our parents speak for us. And so even when I was an adult, it was a little weird talking to adults and addressing them by first name. It was always like Mr. Mrs. But like kids who are more like American upbringing were just like, hey, Joe, hey, Katie. And I was like, (laughs) whoa, this is weird. Yeah, to, to think that like, to have that sort of, encouragement to speak up your own voice and to think for yourself. I really love that aspect of, you know, the educational philosophy. And I I think that's like being more open is also more realistic. Like you are actually more preparing people for the real world. Uh, Like when I'm trying to learn something in development, I don't have a buffet. I don't have like a limited set of options of things that I could learn and how I could learn them. It, it seems like the possibilities are infinite. Like there are always more things that I could learn and it's driven by whatever problems that I need to solve or whatever I happen to be interested in or geeked about at that time. And I have to find my resources. I have to sort of find my own buffet sometimes. And there have been like kids at Pathfinder who have done that too. Like yeah. um, there's, there's one student or former student who now co-works at a startup yeah, because he wanted to, like a tech startup or a tech company, I guess. They're not really a startup, been around for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Still have a good startup culture though. Yeah. So 
he works there because that's where he can surround himself with other tech people and have other people that he can ask questions and even helps them out sometimes. There is like a, he's, he's been like really, really geeked about Linux and probably at this point, like knows more about Linux than I do. And I like <laughs> ran Linux as my primary operating system for 15 years. And he's, he's only 15 years old. So yeah, Gosh. that's saying a lot. And he started out with Minecraft. He was one of these classic, like quote unquote, hooked on video games. I was kids. just about to ask about the video game angle. Cause me as a kid would have been like um, world of Warcraft, like give me a computer. Bye bye. Yeah, I mean, and so in some instances, it could be that that's a passion. And in some instances, it could be a distraction. Mm -hmm. I see it as a valuable learning experience to learn how to deal with your own distractions at a younger age. So that then when you have a higher stakes, higher risk problems, when you're a young adult, you're, you already know how to cope with your own demons. Does that make sense? And yeah, and I've, I've seen kids go from zero to 60 on a million different subjects. This, this same kid we're talking about was doing algebra problems yeah, well, on the well, whiteboard. Let's, let's call him Michael just to give him a name. Right. <laughs> so let's call him Michael. And he learned six programming languages on his own. Yeah. And now he's, he had, we had all of these parents lining up to mentor him. And he's just <laughs> surpassed all of them in so many ways because he has all the time in the world to just learn rather than to work. And I had noticed his interest once he, he was showing me stuff and I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I know people who would understand what you're talking about. And that's how we started a one day a week internship for him that turned into three days a week that turned into, he just left our school and that's what he does now. Wow. Oh yeah. And, and by the way, like when I was talking about Minecraft with Michael, he, I was, I was complaining that in this one mod for Minecraft, called ComputerCraft, where you can actually like program Lua inside of Minecraft to have it do different things. Like you're programming on a little like really simple computer inside of the game. And the interface is really terrible. Like when I'm programming, I'm used <laughs> to like having a, a much nicer editor. And he just told me like, what are you, what are you doing? You can actually, there's this trick where you can code outside of the game and save it inside the game for like that computer in the game. Uh, and, and he uses Vim. And so he just, of he course. just like, <laughs> of, course. of course he does. Vim yeah. Michael. <laughs> Michael uses Vim. And, and so like, he actually figured out how to have like a really nice editor because he also didn't stand for that. And now <laughs> I don't have to either. And I learned something that I never would have learned on my own. Or probably never would have. So I would have assumed that was just a hard limitation. And that's, that's the power of learning communities and, and people like directing their own learning, like finding resources that aren't provided on the menu that everyone has access to. Wow. So, you know, we we're talking about open source learning. And so both of you, Chris and Hope, how do you feel that self-directed learning relates to like development in the open source community more so in a, as far as the relationship between them? And how we can learn from that? How can we benefit from this sort of thinking? Well, in my own open source work, like when you're creating something that's never been created before, there's not really a curriculum for how to do it, mm. right? I mean, sort of by definition. Mm -hmm. And so you do have to figure things out on your own and like learn not only how to do it, but what it is that you even need to learn. Like how to identify where your mm -hmm. skills are falling short and, and what could help you. And, and that's inherently social too. Mm -hmm. Like I, I can't do that on my own. Or if I did, like I wouldn't be very effective. Like I want to learn from others who are doing similar work and are trying to solve similar problems and share resources with them. And that's, that's absolutely essential. And so I think the, the collaboration uh, and the self-directed nature, like, like knowing how to figure out what questions to ask, how to keep myself motivated, come up with projects for myself. Like that's, that's huge. And it's something that I didn't really get a chance to learn in school. I had to figure out on my own. Yeah. And I would, I would just add that in the traditional model, there's one right answer and you're really recreating work that other people have already done, Yeah, which seems mm -hmm. really inefficient. Mm -hmm. And that from what I've seen in an open source world, you're looking for the best answer that somebody else figured out and they share it. So there's the, the sharing of the best answer is not cheating. 
when you look something up. Wait, you I, mean Stack Overflow is not cheating? Yeah, yeah. it's not cheating. <laughs> yeah, one of my other favorite quotes about programming specifically is good programmers write good code. The best programmers steal better code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just trying to do something that, that makes things work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that just seems like an entirely different goal than in, in the traditional education model that most people experience. Yeah, where it's, it's not even thinking about, like at least the, in my own education, I wasn't even thinking about what the right answer is a lot of times. It was even worse than that. It was like, what do they want to hear? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do I get the grade? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like, what, what, do I, what do I have to do? And, and that, can be, that can be useful too, to some extent, like navigating systems. Mm-hmm. But that's something you can learn without destroying your motivation for learning. Right? <laughs> like how, at Pathfinder, like, how do people learn how to navigate systems and sort of like play the system? Are there any like hard limitations that like, kids have to work around? I, I guess besides budget constraints, which, which you've talked about. I mean, there's, there's also safety and how to respect other people and how to respect their boundaries. There's also the laws of physics, which a lot of times the kids don't really want to act the way that they do. Like, can we jump off the roof? Yeah, exactly. With umbrellas? Can we buy like Mary Poppins? Yeah, and they'll... They buy push, a gravity potion? Yeah, they push boundaries all the time. Yeah. How do you actually deal with that? Like, if kids want to jump off the roof, and they vote to jump off the roof. No, adults are in charge of safety calls. And I, I don't remember how many times I've said to them, like, our liability insurance won't cover that. <laughs> or, um, the landlord won't allow us to do that. Or, or just things they need to know about legality. Like, we have some very young, like, five-year-olds who like to change their clothes wherever, anytime. And so I have to be like, you know, being naked is a private thing. At least in this culture, yeah. In this culture, we live in America and that means that you need to change your clothes in the bathroom one person at a time. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's the rules of the culture that we live in. And they have to abide by the law and common sense and gravity, you know, whether they like it or not. Or developing like whatever the common sense for that culture, like whatever the shared culture is. Right. And there's, there's so many rules inside the school. Like if they want to petition to use some of the fund money as a group, they can make their own club, but they have to have a president, mm-hmm. a secretary, a treasurer. They have to have a purpose of their club. They have to have a roster of current membership. You know, so it's like there's a lot of bureaucracy to navigate. That said, once they know how to do that, they mm-hmm. know how to form self-governing units and that, that can help them anywhere they go. That's awesome. We've talked about democracy, and I don't know if you know you'd you'd enjoy talking about this, but one of the the core tenets of Pathfinder, as I understand it at least, is is sociocracy, mm-hmm. which is a form of democracy. Yeah. Do, do you want to do you want to talk about that at all? Yes, like- I will geek <laughs> out about sociocracy at any time. <laughs> so sociocracy means literally the governance of the associates. So it's people who work together, and it's based on clarity transparency and feedback loops. There's a website called Sociocracy 3.0. There's also a website called sociocracyforall.org. We'll Um, drop these in the show notes. Yeah. And the way it works is that you have circles of people who are in charge of a very specific set of tasks. They have goals that are clearly delineated called aims. And in working toward those goals, they use principles of consent to make decisions. So consent isn't that everybody gets their way. And it's very different from majority rules voting, which can lead to tyranny of the majority, where you have 51% who are happy and 49% who are disgusted and there's no need to make a compromise. So in consent-based decision-making, you try to find something that works okay for everyone. And the way it works is you make proposals and people have the right to make an objection. If they were actually try to harvest objections to try to find the best idea. So an objection mm. might be like, wait a second, this won't work because such and so. So like if jumping off the roof is like, wait, but this will be okay if we, as long as we use umbrellas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I would say, <laughs> I have an objection, which is not only does the world not work like Mary Poppins, but also <laughs> our liability insurance won't cover that. And that would be a valid enough objection to cancel the proposal. But I might say, what's another way we could experience jumping and having fun? 
And the kids might say, well, what if we get a kitty trampoline? Is everybody okay with getting a small kitty trampoline and putting it in the yard and trying it out? So you keep the proposal gets more and more specific as people harvest objections. Like a large trampoline, we'd have to pay more for our insurance, so we can't do that. Or um, people might break their arms and legs. Or And then the kitty trampoline, the kids might say, well, everybody can't jump on it at the same time. So at the end of the day, they might vote instead to go to a trampoline park where everyone can jump. And they vote on using the fun money to do that, make it a specific time and place. So starting out with jumping off the roof, which isn't feasible, and then ending up with something that everybody can live with. It's not anybody's first choice, or it might be some people's first choice, but the idea is just to move forward. Also to try things out and check out how does it actually go. So trying to come quickly to a decision rather than getting bogged down in the details. Uh, I'm sure you've been to meetings that go on too long. Meetings using sociocracy are usually an hour or less, sometimes, you know, 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, You just bang out the decisions, try things out and see if it works. And if it works, Mm -hmm. keep doing it. And if it doesn't work, you can change it. You can drop it. It's not like making rules where it's set in stone and you never get to change it again or you don't evaluate and make sure that it's actually working. Like is going to the trampoline park meeting our needs? And if not, what could we do differently? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Like I think a lot of people, when they think about trying to create some kind of consensus, like that seems like I would just go on forever. You'd never actually decide anything because people would just disagree. And then you'd uh, end up in the same situation that like a lot of political systems are in. Yeah. <laughs> like everyone just like disagrees and then like everyone vetoes each other's ideas. I'd say there's two, the two important principles or catchphrases. One that we use a lot is, is it good enough for now? And is it yeah. safe enough to try? So with that, everybody can live with it. You just try it out. The other one we say a lot is those who do the work decide. So there's a lot of delegating of tasks and saying, you know what, that's not in my ballpark, so I'm not going to micromanage. I'm just going to let this person who's been given the task do it to the best of their abilities with full autonomy. That's great. And I think that's how like the best yeah, software that. teams also work. Like you, uh, you work, focus on small iterations, you do user testing, you know, you, you, you try something out and you gather some data. You know, you do A-B testing. It also sounds like it develops a skill that I didn't even realize until probably as an adult is a necessary skill to really thrive, which is identifying the problem itself. (laughs) Because, you know, like, so with, let's take the jumping off the roof example. I I really, (laughs) but I really liked, (laughs) I mean, let's just, let's just run with it. I really liked how you suggested that maybe getting the feeling of flying could be achieved in some other way, which, you know, one person might say, oh, well, the goal of jumping off the roof is just to have fun. But by refining it down to a more specific end goal, which is to have the feeling of flying, to me, that's such a valuable skill because I don't know about you guys, but in software, a lot of times you're handed this task and it's very much just a task without really any explanation as to what problem you're trying to solve. Like you don't say. All the time, mm-hmm. yeah. No, and so, yeah, like learning how to root out what what you're trying to solve because a lot of times the task you're given isn't the best way to solve the problem. Yeah. But you don't know that until you know what the problem is. Yeah, gosh, there have been a lot of times where, for example, if someone like finds that like no one's clicking on a button that they really want people to click on, they'll ask me to like change the color of the button or move the button somewhere else. red. Uh, and yeah. I'm thinking like, that's not even in our color scheme. Like, what is it they actually <laughs> want to achieve? Like that, that clashes horribly. <laughs> and, you know, you could just do it and then you create like a different kind of problem and maybe don't even solve the original problem. Or like you can, like, as you were saying, Ari, ask follow-up questions and, you know, keep asking, you know, like one trick in natural development is the five whys, you know, just like ask why. I don't know about five, but just like a bunch of times until you really feel like you're, you're at more of the core of the issue. Mm-hmm. Is that something you also do at, at Pathfinder? Well, and I, I would say that the way that works at Pathfinder is that we're looking for the fundamental needs that people have. Mm-hmm. So like feeling like you're flying might not be a fundamental need, 
but um, clarity is a need. So in, in the case of your button, you're looking for what's the clearest way to communicate to people. This is what you're supposed to do with this thing. This is how you use it. And I'd say at Pathfinder, we do spend a lot of time defining problems. So just asking the question, really, what's going on here? What is it that people need? And how can we get it to them? How can we get those needs met? Because sometimes it can look like a problem, but really the solution is just finding the right place for something. Like, for example, kids who want to sing, like singing is awesome. And that's why we have a music room at Pathfinder. If somebody's walking around singing the same thing over and over again, it can get really annoying. And interfere with other people's work. And interfere with other people's work. Or everybody has the right to peaceably exist. So if someone else is infringing on your right to peaceably exist, you can ask them to change their behavior. But we just have a place for all the different kinds of behaviors so that kids don't have to stifle their needs Like if you need to sing to express yourself, you just go to the music room. Mm -hmm. If you need to bounce off the walls, there's a room for that. If you need a quiet place to concentrate, there's a library. So yeah, defining what people's needs are and then also spending time being open-minded. I think the best meetings that I've been in using sociocracy, you don't really know what's going to happen. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of using many people's minds together as kind of a super brain to refine and get closer to what the core of the issue is that you're looking at. When I was first exposed to self-directed education and free democratic schools, that was something that took me a lot of time to get used to, just like not knowing what's going to happen. Like I was trained to like always have a lesson plan. And if Mm -hmm. things don't go according to the plan, like that means that there was something wrong with the plan. But you can actually learn so much more being ready to adapt and also not trying to steer things in a particular direction sometimes. You know, letting, letting students decide what direction uh, they want to go. And I've been tempted so many times, yeah, just to keep things according to the plan to just like give people the answer when they're not getting it. It's like, oh, here's, here's what you do or here's how you do it. Or like, this is, you know, you mean this? You know, like I'll try to help them and like I'm, I'm robbing them of opportunities to ask their own questions, to find their own answers, to go in their own directions. And that's really the most useful skills. And giving them opportunities to teach each other. I mean, it's, it's sort of a cliche that yeah, the best way to learn something is to teach it. But then if students don't ever get that opportunity to like, teach things mm-hmm. to each other, then you're robbing them of the best opportunities to learn. And the teacher is the one who gets the most out of it. Yowza. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So we've talked a lot about these ideologies in the context of children. But I went through very traditional schooling, public schools. I attempted college. And that was when I guess I reached my breaking point with traditional education. (laughs) Because it didn't work out. So how, as an adult, can we try to learn these things that we were deprived of as children? Like, are there effective ways as adults to do that? Or do you just kind of have to figure it out for yourself? Which I'm guessing the answer is you just figure it out for yourself. <laughs> as soon as I said, I was like, oh yeah, self-directed learning, huh? <laughs> I mean, but there's like, yeah, there can, there can be differences between just like figuring it out by yourself and having the skills to find people to help you figure things out. Like, you know, there are support groups and meetups and like other learning communities that like help people learn skills to help them live that we often form ourselves as the people who have those problems. You know, there isn't like someone who has all the answers, just like passing them down. I would also say that there's something about a community of practice and that can come in many shapes, sizes, forms. The ones that I'm most familiar with are kind of experiential learning around self-directed education in communities where you can go do like a two-week workshop where an adult self-directed learning community forms and you learn through actually doing the process. And I'd say there are, there are a few colleges um, and higher institutions of learning that do follow self-directed learning principles. And there's more adult education in the works that uses the same principles. However, like if you're out of education already, then it's like, yeah, how, how do you find this? I don't know. Yeah, for, for, for me, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of resources that you can find, but often just like having conversations 
is a, is a big one and being willing to be vulnerable. Like, and that's something that's really hard coming from traditional schools where you're supposed to have the right answer. Mm. And it's a problem if you don't have the answer. And actually with the kind of assessment that we do, like with grades, the answer is either right or wrong, which is basically never true in real life. And once you get something wrong, it haunts you for the rest of your life. (laughs) (laughs) if If you get a C on this math test, it doesn't matter. Like if you learn that skill later, that C stays with you because you didn't learn it in time. You didn't learn it at this one time when you were supposed to have learned it. There usually is not a way to make up or have reflected that you know that now. Mm. And so you learn that challenging yourself, that making mistakes, that admitting you don't know something is actually emotionally dangerous. And in in a self-directed learning system, you feel more comfortable with that because that is the whole thing, asking questions and sharing resources with each other and admitting you don't know things. Like that's, that's how you get to really interesting stuff. And you're not being punished for that. You're being facilitated. Basically have like learning personal assistance helping you out. Okay, Chris, there's no wrong answer. There's two. <laughs> the question I'm about to ask, we've established that. <laughs> In the context of everything we've been talking about so far, what are your thoughts on boot camps versus self-taught? Or do you have an opinion? It's okay if you don't. Gosh, it's it's really tough to to have an opinion. I think for all boot camps. I mean, first of all, I haven't experienced all boot camps, and I've never experienced really? a boot camp huh. firsthand. And, and so, you know, I've worked with people who've either you know been in boot camps or have run boot camps, and I've also done some some research myself and, and looked at curriculum materials and just try to get a sense for for how they work and what their what their model is. And I'd say like, sometimes it, it sounds like it can be really helpful. Like, I don't know if this counts as a boot camp, but the, uh, what is that one in New York? The something center recourse, recurse center Yeah, mm-hmm. in New York. I mean, sounds actually very, very self-directed where, where people go there and they, they come up with their own goals and they're, they're guided in figuring out like how to figure out their own goals. And also how to find resources and how to work together with other people who might have similar goals, how to come up with projects to help them practice and test their own knowledge and and their own learning. And that seems really, really, really valuable. Other times, it, it can seem more like traditional schools where it's like trying to cram answers into your head in a short period of time and trying to get you to produce things sometimes in a very artificial context where like that's that's not what real development work looks like you know you're sometimes you know just typing in answers in a screen and I, I've seen people go through a lot of like video courses too uh, sometimes where you know there are these little quizzes and you do something in the quiz and at the end you like you feel like you've learned a lot you know and, and you've done let's say like you know, five different courses on like HTML, JavaScript, and CSS each. And then you sit down to like build a website and you're like, I don't know where to start actually. I just, I type stuff in that box. <laughs> how do I make the box on the internet? <laughs> how do I do that? <laughs> and like, how do I organize files and stuff like that? What kind of files do I need? Sometimes they haven't even heard of like an index.html file and they don't know, they've never even heard of like website hosts. You know, these are, these are really fundamental skills. And so, yeah, so I, I think sometimes those boot camps can be really helpful. And sometimes it can just be like really helpful to get you like started on your journey to, to start exposing you to some resources, even if the, the course itself isn't that thoughtfully designed or, or isn't designed, you know, according to like the, the last decades of education research. I mean, we live in a society where everyone basically thinks they know what good education looks like because they've all been a student. You know, even though they don't have experience as a teacher, even though they only have experience as a student in one particular system of education, even though they haven't read or conducted like any research on 
education, educational psychology, human motivation. You know, we have, we have so many assumptions about how people work and how children develop that are just false because they only develop that way because of the systems that we've created that perpetuate those patterns that we notice. I have to say this, this, this conversation has honestly brought up a lot of emotions for me, which I was not anticipating at uh, all. <laughs> I mean, but actually at one point, like I was getting a little teary, just like thinking about the fact that I have no idea how I would perform in an environment like Pathfinder. I, it makes me wonder, have I just been so brainwashed by the system I was raised in? It created a lot of self-doubt, which I realize is sort of the opposite of, <laughs> of what these ideas are supposed to instill. But it is it really made me think about how how much damage my education may have done. And mm. that that sucks. <laughs> I, I think it makes absolute sense to be emotional about it. I was really, really emotional when I was first encountering these ideas. Like I was, I actually went through a, a really deep depression trying to come to terms with everything that I, I'd experienced. And a lot of things that I'd been taught, like as a, as a young teacher mm-hmm. and what I was learning and what I was experiencing in other schools that, that I would visit and participate in, it kind of broke me because there was, there was such a huge difference. And it makes sense that school is emotional. I mean, how many of us still have stress dreams mm-hmm. of like, oh, we forgot to <laughs> study for an exam or we forgot that you have the exam. Yeah, I mean, everybody. Oh, no, I forgot to attend the class. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like school, the way that it's set up right now, like is stressful and often like a traumatic experience. Yeah. I mean, it's good to know I'm not the only one who had an emotional response to learning about this stuff. <laughs> so I was like, what is wrong with me? No, nothing yeah, wrong with I, you at all. It was, I mean, like high school for me, I, I have ADHD. So that made learning a bit of a difficult process for me, or at least, especially in a traditional context, very difficult because the expectations that you're organized and that is something that I struggle with as most people with ADHD do. And so I, I always got the comment from teachers. She's so bright. If only she would do work. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I'm sure, a story many people who are listening have heard as well yeah. in their own experiences. So like, you know, eighth grade, the highest GPA I'd ever had was a 3.2. They tell you that high school is when it starts to count. So I was like, okay, fear is going to motivate me. Fear of failure because... If I don't do well now, that's failure, right? So I absolutely completely burned myself out getting a 4.0, but I got it. Mm-hmm. And then as it turns out, no one really cared. <laughs> like my dad was just like, well, that was just what we expected you to do anyway. And I was like, but I worked so hard. Mm-hmm. And so steadily as high school went on, I just became more and more disillusioned and broken. Even though I at least had the opportunity my junior and senior year to do community college, which that at least put a lot of more of the learning responsibility on me. And it's like less like, if you don't do this, you're in trouble. It's just like, if you don't do it, that's on you. Okay, mm. you do you. Mm. But it just, yeah, I, I had depression, yeah. eating disorder issues. It just, and all of that was because of my education. And, and our education doesn't really, isn't really designed for a neurodiverse population. And actually, like it's often designed, or I mean, it really is designed for a kind of neurotypical that that doesn't actually exist. And yeah, Ari, Ari, <laughs> what you said really spoke to me. I mean, I'm kind of overachievers anonymous, you know. I finished <laughs> that is high, too. <laughs> I, I finished college by the time I was 19, and as a young adult, what I realized that I had missed out on by working so hard in school was friendships and relationships and play. And it took me 12 years of decompressing from my own education to figure out like, who am I? What gives my life meaning more than just jumping through these endless hoops and proving to other people that I have worth because I can do this stupid academic trick. So, I mean, and that's for me, creating Pathfinder is very much a part of self-healing in terms of trying to not scar children the way that I was scarred. And also giving them, yeah, giving them the time and space and to say, you know what, like on my deathbed, I might regret not telling someone that I loved them, but I'm probably not going to regret missing turning in my math homework on time, you know? And so just saying really like, what values do I have as a person and how does that 
reflect the way that I treat children. It's not an easy road to walk, but it's, it takes a lot of deep reflection and it's hard. Yeah. I think that's a big part of like what makes it hard to quote unquote, like stay organized for a lot of people is that you're staying organized for other people's priorities. They're not actually your values. I had never thought about it like that, but that totally makes sense. You know, you are probably like really good about making sure you do a lot of things in your life that were more important to you. Mm. Oh, I play plenty of video games because that's important to me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You even had like a wow Twitch stream and stuff like that's that's like a legit job. You had you had subscribers and didn't you even have like sponsors and stuff? No, I was not that awesome. Oh, you weren't that? Uh, because I, did, I didn't really play by the rules because, you know, there's a certain formula to successful streams. And I just preferred to build a community that I, that reflected my values, which mm-hmm. is, you know, irreverent. <laughs> and and so it was really more, yeah, I did. And honestly, that was one of the, at the time, it was probably the thing I was most proud of in my life was building mm-hmm. that community around, you know, just not giving a flying F sorry, this is a clean podcast, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, it very much was like a second full-time job because I was generally playing like eight hours a night in addition to, you know, working eight hours that day. But yeah, it was because it was something that I was at least for a while passionate about. And then when that passion faded, I stopped, mm-hmm. but yeah, that was what replaced the void that school left. <laughs> Because I needed yeah. a sense of achievement, like I was addicted to that and, and, and autonomy. Yeah, I mean, because when you're when you're just told like what to do, when to do it, and how to do it all day, like when you come home, at least when I came home, like I just wanted, I just wanted to do anything else but that, because I'd had enough of it, and it, it seemed criminal to me that like I I'm, I have no autonomy all day, and then I come home and I'm still supposed to like do this like mountain of homework. Mm. Yeah. Like adults <laughs> don't even have that kind of workload. What, what the heck is this? Yeah, or at least workload I'm, of like things that they didn't choose for themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm now realizing that like the whole like, you know, community as curriculum, it sort of applied even in World of Warcraft because in order to excel in World of Warcraft, you have to learn how to work as a team. You have to learn conflict resolution and you have to you know, play within certain boundaries, but also mm-hmm. be creative in how you play within those certain boundaries. So it sort of makes sense now why my father did not discourage me from just playing all the time when I dropped out of college. Because <laughs> he was like, well, at least you're exercising your brain because he, he was a casual player. So... <laughs> but- I mean, I honestly, it did. It taught me a lot of the skills that I now use as a developer. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot about the like working together with other similar. people. Yeah, definitely. And a lot about like figuring out the system and figuring out how it works, like finding the right tools for the job, like it, negotiating with each other, how you can combine your resources to, to solve hard problems. That's So what I'm saying is play more video games, guys. No. <laughs> No, but I, I mean, I, I, I'm serious when I say that, like, I think you probably learned a lot more like real life skills, like obsessing over World of Warcraft. And avoiding real life. Yeah, I know. The irony. <laughs> <laughs> then, then a lot of your, a lot of your education. Hmm. Yeah, no, I would absolutely agree with that. Because yeah, in, uh, in typical education, it, I, one of my biggest issues was I moved when I was 15 to a much more affluent school district in another state. So first I lost all my friends, but then I was in this situation where most of my peers had been given every opportunity, every resource. And in a lot of ways, they, they just seemed so far superior to me. And I was so motivated by being the best that I did not know how to handle not being able to be the best because I had to concede that I couldn't compete with a lot of them. They were just next level. Had way more resources yeah. than you, yeah. And, exactly. And, um, but also some of them were just legitimately brilliant people. And I, yeah. I mean, I'm grateful that I was exposed to people like that because, you know, it's always nice to aspire to something higher than yourself. But mm-hmm. when that makes you feel like your self-worth is diminished, that's a problem. So it took me a long time to realize that I should appreciate when someone is better at something than me and yeah. learn from that. Gosh, yeah, I, I've I've had a really hard time in my life with that too. Like when 
when your whole life is basically this artificial game. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then you get really good at like playing the game better than anybody else. And then you start asking yourself, just as Hope is talking about, like, who, who am I actually? Yeah. What do I even care about? Like, what brings me joy? It's not playing this game. This, this game was just the only option. I honestly think that's one of the reasons why, de- you know, web development especially was so appealing to me. Because it was this space where, in a sense, there is a right answer. Either your code runs or it doesn't. But there's a long list of right answers. And there's a creative process in arriving at that answer. Yeah. And especially you know, with HTML and CSS, there's a visual creativity, but also with an analytical process to it. And I'd always been trying to find something that bridged those two sides of me because it always felt like it had to be one or the other. <laughs> you know, either I was going to be an engineer or I was going to be a writer because I entertained those both at the same time. Did not end well. <laughs> because I don't like technical writing, but... <laughs> But yeah, so I, for me, I guess, yeah, development, especially because it is this very, you have to be a self-motivated learner in order to keep up, especially with JavaScript. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that's why it finally clicked for me because it was this very free form yet structured thing. Because I, with ADHD, I need structure to a Mm -hmm. point, but I also hate structure. It's fun. (laughs) And that's, that's increasingly like more and more of work that is available to humans. Like the stuff that is rote, that is just like following a set of instructions. Like computers can do that better than humans can. You know, they're, they're more reliable than people are. And so they can, they can do those jobs and those jobs are disappearing for people. And so what we're left with is the work that like can be actually like way more fulfilling and way more creative can really like feed our curiosity and help us like push the boundaries of what's possible. That's exciting. But also the education systems that most of us grow up with do not prepare us for it at all. And that's why self-directed education is the education of the future. (laughs) Full circle. (laughs) Just saying. Yeah. I mean, and I think, and the present and and, and the past. I think it was always better, but like, it's just getting more and more painful. Yeah. I feel like we could go on about this for a while, but maybe we should, we should wrap up with like a couple points. I think that could be really useful for people listening. Yeah. So first of all, like if there are people who are really interested in this for their own learning, Hmm. like what are some resources that they can dig into? Yeah. I would start with the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. Yeah, we'll, we'll drop that in the show notes too. Yeah. And reading, if you if you just use the search term Sudbury School, Democratic School, Self-Directed Education, you'll find a lot of resources. Awesome. And so for people who are maybe parents and they're like looking out for their kids and helping best prepare their children, mm-hmm. like for the jobs that are especially going to exist by the time that they're in the workforce. And the, the kind of, I mean, gosh, it's not even just jobs. I almost feel like kind of slimy just thinking about jobs because I, I use these kind of skills in like every aspect of my life, right. like personal relationships, just like managing my home, figuring out who I want to be friends with, like what kind of activities I want to take part in. <laughs> yeah, I use this. It really, yeah, it's just being human. Yeah. But for, for parents who are looking out for their kids and want to see if this would be like a good fit for, for their children and help them grow in ways that maybe they're not currently able to. How can parents do that? What kind of resources can yeah. provide them? I would say, first of all, to resist the impulse to structure every aspect of your kid's life and to mm-hmm. look for ways to give them free time where they can mix with people of all ages and pursue their own interests. So that might mean advocating for no homework at the school your kid goes to or advocating for longer recess. Recess has been cut a lot and it's really damaging, especially for very young children. Yeah. Then third, there's, there's great podcasts you can listen to. The first. Wait, r- real quick before you go yep. into those though, I have some, some really great resources. Uh, Alfie Cohn is a teacher and researcher and author who's, who's done a lot of, uh, written a lot of books and given some talks on this topic and written some short essays too that are like really digestible if you don't want to like read a whole book or even like watch a whole talk. And that's at alfiecone.org, I think. I'll drop that in the show notes too. 
gives a lot of great resources for why like homework is actually like not supported by like the tons of research that we have and why self-directed education is is really helpful for us in giving more of a background on that. And that's that's only one resource, but it can get you started. He also cites a lot of other stuff that can be useful. And I'll plug the evolutionary psychologist, Peter Gray. He really got me started on this. He has a blog, Freedom to Learn. And then Akila Richards has a podcast called Raising Free People. It's really all about parenting, de-schooling, and as she calls it, decolonizing education by de-schooling yourself, like kind of unlearning the things you learned in school that were damaging so that you don't pass those things on to your children. So that's a specific resource for parents. Awesome. We'll also drop that in the show notes. And then for Pathfinder specifically and you specifically, how can people find you on the internet? Pathfinder Community School, all one word, dot com. And are you accepting new enrollments? Heck yeah. And what were the ages again? (laughs) Um, five to 14. And we're located near RTP in Durham, North Carolina. Awesome. And shall we move on to picks? What do you think, Ari? Let's move on to picks. Okay. Ben, go. My pick for this week is actually, you heard Divya's episode a couple weeks ago, uh, is Essentialism by Greg McCohen. And um, I actually read it before, but having Divya mentioned it again, I had to go through it again and really start to uh, read through it. And so it's actually um, coming at a good time to what we're talking about because it really is about in a world where you have so much choice, sometimes, especially as an adult, it can be overwhelming. And for those who are getting involved in open source, it's just like there's a saying that's like being uh, involved in open source is like being on call with the entire world because everyone has a question and everyone wants an answer. And so it's just about trying to figure out sort of what's, what's core and important to you and to spend time not just trying to get more things done, but instead spending time on getting the right things done that matter to you. And so that's been really speaking to me. And so I get a huge thanks to Divya for reminding me to read that again. But yeah, that is my one pick for the week. All right, uh, Chris. Okay, my pick, I'm just going to have one pick. And it's seriously, this is what I consider my, my life's mission. The only reason that I'm in technology, if I'm, if I'm super, super honest, is because like, it is really exciting as a tool that can help me do the kind of education that I most care about. And also like, it, I love learning and geeking out about those problems. And I, education is a great like, way to just like be excited about something and have that be useful to other people. And so please, please do check out self-directed education. You know, check out schools like Pathfinder that you might be able to find in your area. This is something that has been and will continue to be really, really emotional for me. I have a rule now that I'll work with schools, but not for schools, because as a teacher, I found my hands just tied. And there were points where I wondered, am I actually doing more good than harm? And I wasn't sure. And so I had to quit and find other ways to still be involved in education that aligned with like all the research that I'd read, with that aligned with like this, the successful models of schooling that I'd seen that seemed impossible to me at the time, but worked somehow. Like, even though that's, that's not how people should work, like it, it didn't match anything that I had seen. It was really, really mind blowing. And if you do have questions about this uh, and you do want to dive, dive deeper, I am always happy to talk about education. And this is the one time where I will say, like, please DM me. At Crispy Fritz, instead of at Gloomy Loomy. <laughs> I was like, is he? Okay, good. <laughs> like at Crispy Fritz on Twitter or like, shh, hmm, do I want to give out my email address? Whatever. About this, if you send me an email about something else, like I'm going to ignore it. But CrispyFritz at gmail.com. If you want to talk about education, if you want to geek out about this stuff, if you want some more resources about anything, send me an email, reach out to me on Twitter. I'm really, really passionate about this stuff and I, I'd love to help. All right. Uh, Hope, do you have any picks? Yes, I have two picks. Uh, the first one is a show I'm obsessed with and that is Outlander, which is on Netflix. If you need action, adventure, romance, escapism, Scotland, and a lot of kilts, it's really your go-to show. 
Uh, Who doesn't need more kilts? <laughs> I know, I know. And I, and I got to say, like, uh, Hope turned me on to this show as well. And I was going to say, haven't you picked this before? I, I, I might have. Did he? I think you did, yeah. So I, I watched an episode and it's like, I'm not really into this. <laughs> I watched three episodes and it's like, I just don't think this is for me. I got to... <laughs> Six episodes, I think it was around maybe episode five or six, where I realized, like, ooh, I'm invested. I am really, <laughs> really invested. And something that Hope didn't mention is how much the show explores, like, the historical systems, which I really geek out about. Like, this is what I like in historical fiction. Like, they do things, very, very minor spoilers, like collect taxes, Ooh, which is really cool. Wow. You get to see how taxes were collected in a time before we had like computers and stuff. I am not sold. (laughs) And like like how court systems work in different, like conflicting court systems are negotiated. It's it's so cool. There's also a lot of corsetry. So that's just all I'll say about that. And politics. (laughs) Sorry, I won't steal your pick. (laughs) So my other pick is a blog. It's called Post Secret postsecret.com. And it's a weekly blog where people mail in their secrets on a postcard. And it's a community art project. I think it's one of the longest running free blogs. Yeah. It's been around for a long time because I remember in 2006, I bought my friend a book form of it. So that was a while ago. (laughs) And it definitely, whenever I read it, it helps me feel closer to other people because I just imagine that you know, everybody, it's kind of the opposite of Facebook where everybody makes their lives look better than they actually are. It's like really raw, really honest, really emotional. Post secret. I like it. I will second I'm going to check it out. It, it makes you feel less weird, which we could all use that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right. All right. I guess now it's uh, my turn for picks. I have three picks this week. <gasps> that never happens. But two of them are songs because I thought, you know, I'd speed up the whole music selection process. So these are two by the same artist. I have no idea how to pronounce this, so we're going to just go with it. I'm just going to say it's Motorat. It may not be, but it's spelled like Mode Rat. (laughs) Um, And the first song is A New Error. And the second song is Les Grands Marches, or if we're going to do it phonetically, Les Grandest Marches. (laughs) I was really excited about mispronouncing that horribly. And my Third pick is a TV show that's actually been out for quite a while. It has ended, though I heard that this last week there is rumors that there might be a movie. And that show is a somewhat ironic twist is the show Community, which is about a study group at a community college. (laughs) But it's a great ensemble cast. The characters are interesting and unique and fun and human. And that show is available on Hulu. And with that... That is all for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And until next time, enjoy the view. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com view.